Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of THP Strength. I hope you guys had a very Merry Christmas. Today, we are going to be talking about squatting. So the question we're going to try to answer is why is squatting valuable? Hunter here is going to probably ask a bunch of other questions as well as interject his thoughts on the topic, but we'll get right into it here. So why is squatting valuable? There are a ton of reasons why you should squat, and we're going to go through a variety of them. The first one is the EMG activity. So if you do a deep squat, you are going to recruit a variety of muscles and you're going to do it in a sequence that is very specific to jumping. So that also changes according to the depth that you squat. And the EMG activity is an indicator of the amount of force that you're able to produce. And if you were to load up a very heavy back squat, and you put on, I guess maybe I should describe what EMG units are because most, some of you don't know. They're basically little sticky tabs and you take these little sticky tabs and you put them on your muscles right on the middle of the muscle belly. And then you do a max voluntary isometric contraction, usually against an immovable object, obviously, so you can get the maximum amount of muscle activity or recruitment. And then that tells you roughly, you know, what your total activity is in the muscle for that specific session. Now, if you take the units off and you put them back on, you can't compare one session to the next because the connectivity to the individual muscle is different because you're measuring electrical signals and maybe the EMG sticky tab is not as wet as it was before and you're not gonna get as high of the measurements. So you can only do it within the session to compare. So you hook them up, you do your max voluntary isometric contraction, you get the peak forces, you get the peak EMG activity, which is the peak muscle activity because electrical signals happen first from your brain to the muscle, and then you get the force output that follows it. So all that said, if you were to put them on your glute, on your quad, on your hamstring, on your calf, what you would see in this activity compared to jumping, if you also did it for jumping, you would see that the same muscles that are recruited in a squat are also recruited in jumping. So squatting adds a, and that's two foot jumping specifically, but also one foot, so squatting ends up being a super valuable tool because you're able to get super high motor recruitment from, from squatting. And that's important because motor recruitment is ultimately what dictates force output. So again, going back to jumping wise is relevant. If you were to put those same EMG units, or if you were to keep the EMG units on and you were to jump, you would see super high motor recruitment and jumping as well in the same exact muscles and the sequencing although not exactly the same, is actually going to be pretty similar. So this, I guess, is the underlying reason or the explanation for why squatting or really any exercise ends up being very specific in a sense. So that is one specific reason why. Hunter, I guess I'll ask you, does that make sense? And do you have any questions about what I just said? <laughs> yeah, so I think, so it makes a lot of sense. But one thing that I struggle with this understanding is I understand the muscles uh, required to perform a squat are similar, if not identical, maybe not fully identical, but similar to the muscles uh, that you use to jump. Yes. But <laughs> you have players like John Morant, and I bet that guy cannot squat more than 275, but he jumps 50 inches. <laughs> okay. So you get a lot of rub from people. They're like, I understand squat is important, but how important can it really be? But I think the issue is you're looking at correlation versus uh, causation. And correlation is just... That's my favorite I know, thing. right? So if you say correlation, guess what? The ice cream sales go up with crime rate. Did you know that? 
So if there's more ice cream sales, there's more crime rate. So obviously the more ice cream that's sold, the more crime there is. So we should stop selling ice cream. That's the solution. We can no longer sell ice cream because crime rates um, are so high. Guess what? That's not how it works. Wait, wait, wait. wait <laughs> crime wait. rates so go up because it's warm. <laughs> ice cream sales go up because For it's anyone, warm. For anyone, any of that wants, reach out to me on Instagram and I will send you the greatest article on correlation and causation. So the title is 15 insane things that correlate with each other. Yeah. And it really is some of the most crazy outlandish things like births of moths in Bangladesh and book sales in America. That's right. That's right. It's, it's, so the, the it's moth fantastic. Sales, we need to increase the moth sale, the moths, because we'll get more book sales, <laughs> not moth sales. But <laughs> that said, if you're just looking at correlational data, you can look at anything. But if you were to have a very rigorous scientific study where you're taking all of your subjects, they're all very similar in terms of their uh, demographics. So maybe they're all pro athletes or whatever else, or they're bobsledders or they're elite bobsledders or they're sprinters or whatever else. And you take all these elite athletes and you say, okay, this group is going to do this. This group's going to do this. This group's going to do this. And you're all going to live in this white box. And all you're going to do is eat the food. We exactly feed you sleep the exact time we we're, you're going to sleep. You're all going to get these same drugs so that you all are leveling out your hormones. So you're not more stressed or less stressed or whatever else. And we're going to control for everything. And then we're all going to squat <laughs> we're, or this group's going to squat. This group's going to do nothing. And this group is going to, I don't know, do lunges or something. And then we're going to look at the change in your vertical leap or in your power output or in parameters that would indicate that your vertical leap is going to go up. And what you would find is that the parameters that dictate your vertical leap are going to get better. And your vertical leap in the majority or in the group that is doing the squatting is going to get better. So <laughs> I think the issue with that is that people are like, oh, we don't really have cohorts of elite athletes that, uh, that that are doing these studies. Like we don't, we can't control for all those. And I'm like, I don't know if you know this, but THP kind of is a scientific study in and of itself. And I can tell you that squatting definitely improves <laughs> your approach vertical. So while you can look at these outliers and you can pick them and say, oh, look how high they jump. Squatting obviously isn't valuable. That's correlational data. If they were to squat, the parameters for them jumping higher would get better. The things that will ultimately help them jump higher will improve. So Will they jump higher? Yeah, probably eventually they will jump higher or there'll be at less of a risk for injury and they can jump more and then they can jump higher. That's one potential mechanism. But I think at the end of the day, there's no substitute for the benefits that you get from max strength. And again, you can look at all of these outliers and you can say, oh, they don't, they don't obviously need to do that. Ask yourself how much better could they be if they did? Because I jumped higher. I'm a one foot jumper. I jumped higher when I started doing max strength work. Isaiah jumped higher when he started doing max strength and squat, well, squatting specifically. Uh, Hunter, you're jumping higher and you're squatting more. <laughs> like uh, People consistently will improve by not only squatting more weight, but how you squat matters too. It's not even just squatting more weight. Yeah, if you want to increase the your rate of force development, you can just increase your max you can increase your max squat and your rate of force development and that activity will go up. The only way for your max, for your rate of force development to be like your rate of force development can't be higher than your peak force. It can't. So get your peak force as high as you possibly can. <laughs> How do you do that? Get your max squat up as high as you can. Uh, and your, your rate of force development has the potential to go higher now and go faster, higher. There's a rant there. I got a question. Go ahead. I, I love I your questions. Question <laughs> they get me going. I can, I can hear them coming. <laughs> I can hear them coming. So, what do you think is more important than a relative strength index or an absolute strength number for squat? Relative, for sure. If you... Is there any magic multiplier? No, no, not at all. I think it, there's too many variables when you're looking at 
you could say, oh, two times body weight. That's what it is, man. That's the squat you need. Yeah, I wish. But it, I wish. I'd be dunking. <laughs> yeah. But I'd guess be dunking. what? Everyone's, every squat is created differently. Not all squats are created equally. They're not. Every squat is a snowflake. It is. Every squat is a Every individual really has. Their squat is a snowflake. It is individual in its own, in, in its own way. If, you, if you're six foot 10 and you do a deep squat, that's very different than if you're five two and you do a quarter squat. You're telling me a Nate Robinson versus Kevin Durant squad is going to be so, different. Yeah, what? let's say that they're <laughs> let's say that they're exactly the same weight. The only thing that's different is their is their height, and let's say they go to the exact same depth. Okay, the, it's not the same. <laughs> like, it's not the work needed to do a Kevin Durant squad. <laughs> that dude is sending a bar like five feet. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's very very different. So when you're looking at the squat and saying, "Oh, your relative strength is this," or your absolute strength is this. It, it, to me, it means nothing because I have to see the movement and I have to say, okay, how deep did you squat? How long are your femurs? What is, how long are your tibias? What is your ankle flexibility? Like how much hip flexion did you have on that? Because all of those variables, how long is your torso? All of those variables drastically impact the, the motor recruitment, the EMG and thus, or the EMG activity that you will see in that movement, or you'll observe in that movement because the, the motor recruitment is going to be different. If you hinge a bunch, you're not going to recruit your quads as much. You're not. You're going to recruit more. So do you have a preference? Here? That was literally going to be my next. That was going to be my next question. It's going to be: Do you have a preference if someone comes and starts training for you, like me? I started training with you, and I was a very hip hinge dominant squatter. I have since tried to really focus on keeping my weight balanced between my big toe, my pinky toe, and my heel, and that has naturally led to a more quad dominant squat where I really focus on my knee traveling forward aligned with my toes instead of just sitting back. I think it depends on your jump strategy. Everyone's jump strategy, not everyone, but yeah, really the same, in the same way that every squat is created differently, everyone's jump strategy is created differently too. You can't just pick one squat for one individual. In an ideal world, I would know exactly how someone is generating force. And then I would know what their EMG activity is. I would know what the relative torque at each joint is in that squat. And then I would look at their jump or better yet, I would look at their jump first and I would say, how are you generating force? Are you generating force the same way as Isaiah is? Probably not because it's not sprinting. You can't, in sprinting, everyone runs fast the same way. You have very short ground contact times. You have very fast stride frequencies. You have very long stride lengths, right? And the, the only real way internally to run fast is to produce a shit ton of force very fast in the same exact way for every single athlete, regardless of how tall or whatever you are. If you were to normalize for their height and things like that, you're going to see the exact same strategy or pretty much the exact same strategy. You're going to see super stiff lower legs. You're going to see very stiff knees, knee joints. You're going to see, again, short ground contact times. You're going to see a massive load in the Achilles. You're going to see oscillation undulation of the pelvis. You're going to see opposition with the knee, knee and contralateral arm. You're going to see all of those things being consistent, no matter on, no matter who you are, there might be small nuanced things, but at the end of the day, how you run fast is exactly the same. Super, super short ground contact times, big accelerate to massive velocities, decelerate less than other people. It's the same exact equation and sorry, Google's telling me to take my new puppy out. I got a new puppy. <laughs> so again, you might see small changes there. You might see this person shorter, so they're naturally going to have a higher stride frequency and a shorter stride length. And maybe their relative stiffness is a little bit higher because they're shorter. But at the end of the day, it's, it's pretty much the same exact strategy to run fast, but jumping is very different. The window of variability 
and jumping is massive. You can jump off one foot. You can jump off two feet. You can do a standing jump. You could do a hop step into a jump. You could do a big penultimate step. You could do a short penultimate step. You could lower a lot. You could run fast and not lower at all. You could lower a lot and run fast. You could deflect off the ground. You could have a volitional push off the ground. You could use your block foot like a deflection. You could stomp the block foot on the ground. There's so many different ways to jump high that are very different. You could be a speed jumper. You could be a tweener. You could be a power jumper on one foot. So you could use yeah. a short run up. I don't think people really understand this. Yeah. I don't think people really like totally understand it as much as they should, but you can go look at videos of like professional high jumpers, watch them do a standing vert and they'll suck. Yeah. Then watch them do a run one foot approach jump and they jump higher than any basketball player. And in the there's NBA. an explanation for that. <laughs> Whoa, what? <laughs> there's a polarizing explanation <laughs> that happen? for that. Being good at both is very difficult because the thing that it's like a, it's like a two, two-sided coin. The thing that makes you great at one foot jumping is the thing that makes you suck at standing jumps. So if you, all that said, back coming back to squatting, because I was, I was talking about this, because jumping is a very different strategy, depending on who you are as an athlete and what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are, you're naturally going to gravitate towards whatever your body's best strategy is. However, you still want to try to optimize it in terms of the mechanics. How do we optimize that? We're going to try to lengthen out your penultimate step. And at the end of the day, the two things that matter are being low and being fast. So we're going to try to get you to push the whole way through your penultimate step. And we're going to try to get you to lower on that step as much as you can, because that's going to optimize your speed. And that's going to optimize your center of mass position when you touch down the, the plant foot. So if we can do those two things, ultimately from one foot to two foot, you're going to have a good chance of jumping high. The ground contact times might change, but my job is to optimize those two things. And I do that a number of ways. There are instances where I will just say, you know, fuck it. I can't fix every, I can't fix this problem. Travis is a great example. His penultimate step short, but guess what? He's low and he's really fast. I'll let it slide. Am I still going to push him to do that? Yeah. But at a certain point, you can't keep trying to pull the nail out and rehammer it back in straight. When that point is really up to your coach's eye and your coach's discretion, it really just depends on who you are, what your development is like, how long it took you to, to get to that stage, what your current vertical is. The same argument came, comes back to power jumping and speed jumping. It's like, oh, John, why are you learning to speed jump? When you're a power jumper, you're naturally a power jumper. Your body innately wants to be a power jumper. I'm learning to speed jump because one, it is a learned motor pattern and anything is a learned motor pattern. It's just a matter of how you wire it. And while there is a bandwidth of variation that's going to happen, I'm always going to be a speed jumper that probably doesn't get the short ground contact times like the elite guys with the same lift. It's probably never going to happen at that degree, to that degree where, but I can get as close as possible to that, which is still going to be a really freaky level. Am I going to be the best high jumper in the world? No, but can I trend that direction and get improve a lot? Yeah. And you've seen that consistently. I went from high jumping 410 as a power jumper on my right leg to six six foot off a five step in roughly two years or whatever. So as a speed jumper and touching the field goal post with two hands and dunking as a speed jumper off my right leg, I've never dunked on my right leg at all. And it looks better stylistically. It looks better. I'm faster on and off the ground. I have more horizontal velocity. So I'm covering more distance. It looks sick and it's going to pay dividends in a high jump if I want to do that. So for me, it makes perfect sense to do that. That all said, if you know, the strategy that someone uses to jump high. If you're able to see the motor recruitment, you're able to see the force, what the force curve, force time curve looks like, then you can tell what 
stimulus is going to be the most specific because of the outcome that you're looking for. And so you take steps backwards from that outcome you're looking for with EMJ activity and force plate uh, data and say, can you give a real world example? Give a real world example. Okay. If you were to see X, you would do okay. Y. So if I saw a high jumper with super high peak force, or I saw a one foot jump with super high peak force and very short ground contact times. And then I looked at the movement and I saw they had very little knee bend and they were very low into the takeoff and they had a very high horizontal run up velocity. And I looked at the EMG activity and I saw their quads were crazy high activity, super high activity. And their hamstring were super high activity and maybe it was co-contraction. And then I looked at their, their gastroc and their gastroc was mm, not really, but their soleus was crazy high. And then I look at their hip and their hips mm, not really doing anything. And I look at their low back or their abs and their abs are super crazy, but their back isn't. Okay. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go at the end of the season. I need to make sure that they're jumping a lot, no matter what. Okay. Right before the end of the season, I need to make sure that I'm doing things that are going to load the quad that are loading the soleus that are loading their abs. If it was their abs that were firing and I'm not really going to focus so much on their hamstrings. I'm not really going to focus so much on their hips because when they were doing that jump, they weren't really using much that were addressing those. And uh, I'm going to pick things that are really short ground contact time, not at the end of the season because that'll fry them for jumping, which is the thing I want them to get better at. But right before the end of the season, I'm going to do a bunch of stuff that is sh super short ground contact time in nature because short ground contact time activities are inherently super high force activities. They have big spikes in peak force and they have really high RFDs. Okay. So I know that jumping uses super high eccentric forces and, and uses a stretch shortening cycle. So I'm going to pick activities again, maybe two months out or a month out from my competition that are going to ultimately address those qualities. And prior to that, I'm going to train, I'm training to do that specific month or two right before my competitive phase, super effectively, more effectively than I've ever done it or that athlete has ever done it in their entire life. So when they come back, their max strength, the ceiling on that is raised super high. Their max velocity is raised super high. And now when I get to these really specific stimulus, stimuli that I want to use, they're going to be super potent and they're going to be better at doing that stimulus, which means they're adapting better, which means when they come to jumping, they're adapted as an entire organism better, the specific task that they want to do. So all that said, that is why the squat that you pick at the end of the season should be more specific and is different than maybe the squat that you did at the beginning of the season. And that's why every athlete is an individual snowflake in jumping. And the squat that you pick is an individual snowflake, every lift really. But the lift that I pick mid season is not going to be as specific as it picks or as it is closer to competition, because I want a very specific stimulus, maybe a, two, a cycle or two out from competition. Because again, you don't want to put it in the competition because then you're screwed. You're going to be so fatigued. How can you expect to jump high when everything that you're doing is so specific in training that you've already zapped your jump battery doing semi-specific things or very specific things that aren't the thing that you actually want to perform in. So that's also a delicate balance that you have to weigh the cost of. I think a lot of people have seen this happen, but with my training, I am always training to train. <laughs> Very rarely do I let guys get in that one to two month period where I will do super hyper specific stimulus stimuli and then deload them because most guys can't, or most guys, I assume if they're doing THP are very invested athletes and that they train their balls off. They train their dicks off. That's the type of athletes I want. So if they're in that, if they're a part of the team, 
most of them are weak. They come in weak. So raising that ceiling is ultimately going to give them the greatest return. Just getting stronger is going to make them jump higher. That's the first thing you have to do. And most of our athletes are not as strong as I want them to be. So they're just going to jump higher by getting stronger. <laughs> I don't even get into the second or third or fourth phase of my train, my coaching because guys don't have the requisite strength levels to benefit optimally or maximally from the other stimuli. So they're going to, and what do you think those requisite strength levels are strong as shit? <laughs> Not so strong. They can't get stronger. <laughs> like, so take it to so take me for an example, six foot one ninety ish, probably max squat for 30. How did you do that squat? Uh, parallel. parallel, right? How much hip hinge did you have? Not as much as I used to. I'd say I'm middle of the road, not very quad dominant. I've tried to really make myself. So what if you did an ass to grass squat? Let's say and I, I haven't changed you, that. You had the slant board, you're super vertical. You did you not ass to grass. Let's just say that your hips are as low as they could feasibly go. Your knees are super far forward with my biomechanics. Yeah. Let's um, say we put you on a slant board just so you could balance and you got super deep into that squat and it became super knee dominant or you had a little bit of hip hinge, but not near as much. I'd say be pushing the high three hundreds. You really think so? I think I'd lose. I think you'd I think hit, I'd lose close to fifty I think pounds. You would, I think you would squat like 340, 350. It's a very different movement. Bet. Bet. Uh, we're gonna test. <laughs> we're gonna have to wonder. I will tell you this. Good like, thing about THP is we're all like experiments. <laughs> exactly. There's. I just. It's a different movement pattern, and it's way harder. It's completely. Yes. I don't train in that. I would get so. Well, torn. the length. I would get so, so it's so different sore. because your length tension relationship is different. Your muscles are at way longer. The fascicles are at way longer positions. So you're, and you're way weaker when you have less cross bridging. Your muscles have myosin and actin. Myosin, actin, heavy chain and light chain or whatever. And then actin is what binds it together. And they slide, they, they crawl across each other. When you have half cross bridging, you're very strong. So a half squat, you're in that optimal length tension relationship. As you get lower, your muscles are stretching and you have less cross bridging. So you're going to get immediately weaker just from that internally happening at the muscle. And then as you go deeper, your hips and your knees move farther away from the line of action of the barbell. So the joint axis of rotation is moving away from that line of action. So you're also going to get, it's going to get harder and harder. Imagine if you're holding a book bag and you push the book bag farther and farther away from your body, it gets harder and harder to hold, right? That's just the nature of torque. So same way as the, and your shoulders, the axis of rotation, imagine your hand is the weight that you're holding or in your hand is the weight that you're holding. So again, as you push that farther away, that's analogous or a good illustration for what happens when you squat. Your axis is moving farther away from the weight. So it gets heavier and heavier. Your knee joint is moving farther away from the barbell as you squat deeper. Your hip joint is moving farther away. This distance is getting greater as you move that weight or as you get deeper and deeper in the squat. <sighs> I would argue though, if you're particularly balanced, you could take advantage of some sort of, you know, like stretch reflex. Sorry, say that again? I'm assuming oh, oh, though, if you bounce out of the squat, squat more so. Yeah, you could bounce. You could, but because if if I go to parallel, I don't bounce. It. Because if I bounce, if, if you're tall athlete, <laughs> real bad. Yeah, you're just not going to be able to. So there's the wrapping effect, which is your thigh sitting on your calf, and there is a passive energy return that you get from storing energy in the, or there's a passive return in energy from your thigh literally hitting your calf and being able to bounce out of it, and as you touch down, as your thigh touches the calf more and more, you're offloading. That's like holding the barbell on your chest more and more, letting more weight sit on your chest. So if you're a super fat athlete with super thick thighs, do you ever see fat dudes with massive thighs? 
they get to the, the deep squat and they just bounce out of it. Their legs are really short. Thighs are super thick. The more that their thigh and calf touch and the sooner that happens, the easier it is for them to squat. Their sticking point is going to be after the wrapping effect. It gets way harder for them. Most jumping athletes are not built like that. <laughs> most, most all jumping athletes are not built like that. So it's, that's usually not what happens. Again, this comes back to every squat is going to be different for you. I do, I know how you're built in a deep squat. If you were to do it super vertical, <laughs> you're tall enough and your legs are long enough that it's not going to be, it's probably not going to be easier. It's going to be way harder for you. So it's just, again, it's going to be different. I don't know what this all, what your question before that was or where I was going with it. Before. It's like, what, so what is, what would be strong oh, enough? For an athlete so like for you, I would want to get your deep squat, like your good ass to grass squat for you. How, t- how tall are you? Uh, for your build, probably close to 400 would and be like, would man, would be then- like your strongest shit. And guess what? I would still try to make it higher at that point. Honestly, when I got to that point, I would still try to push it far- farther. And the reason being is this, you'd say, well, he's strong enough. He's just, he can, you know, we don't need to do that anymore. Diminishing returns. If you're trying to be the best jumper in the fucking world, you're trying to blow through diminishing returns. You're trying to, you're trying to run through that wall of diminishing returns. You're trying to blow through that plateau. You're trying to leave it behind you. And to do that, you have to absolutely push your max strength to the brink of what you think is possible and push it further. But I think there's a big asterisk here. And that is if you're getting stronger by minimally packing on body weight, I, th- I think but you're always, if you're getting stronger and you're eating 5,000 calories a day. And next thing you know, you gain 10 pounds on your squat, but you also added five pounds you, to your depends body. Where you gain the mass. Isaiah has gained two, three pounds and it's basically exclusively on his legs. And guess what? He get, jumps an inch That's or two. He jumps an inch or two higher every time. <laughs> like the problem is most guys cannot squat in such a way that it benefits their jump. They like they're not actually improving the cross-sectional area of that muscle. That, that's how you increase force output. You increase cross-sectional area. You you can get neural gains, but neural gains they don't go. People think it's like eternally you can just keep getting these neural gains. Not really. Yeah. By the way, shout out Andy Galpin a really good scientist in the field of muscle hypertrophy. He put out two like hour long videos all about how muscles actually grow and how you can um, stimulate growth. Highly recommend checking those out if you want a deep dive into the biochemistry and the, and the physiology. What were the cliff notes? Give me the cliff notes. I'm curious. I want to see if it was the same. Was it like satellite cells um, and talking about like stimulating so he went in through the different theories of muscle growth right now and the level of evidence for all of them and then he went into the uh, current theories of muscle uh, growth and how that growth is actually occurring whether or not you are actually adding uh, muscle fibers or if you're just increasing the cross-sectional area of said fibers what did he conclude and then if you are he concluded that the the preponderance of the evidence right now is that you're increasing the cross-sectional yeah. area and when you're increasing the cross-sectional area how are those actin and myosin growing? Right. Are they growing I don't think we know. around the outside or are they randomly appearing inside the fiber? And so he goes into what it would mean if those proteins are actually accumulating along the outside and if that might increase the likelihood that that actually ends up splitting. Because you do see actual muscle fiber increase. And I think they did an experiment in cats. You obviously can't t- tear out a human you know, well, you can do a biopsy. Start counting you can, fibers. You can do a muscle biopsy. No, no, biopsy. Yeah. But, but no, but they like literally oh, removed the whole thing? I think the entire. Yeah, you could do it. It's yeah, not ethical. Thing. And they just had to count it. <laughs> yeah, it probably Most wouldn't people uh, won't sign pass the it. boards. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, but it was an incredible breakdown of two hours of just muscle anatomy yeah, and physiology deer, and how to I think in deer grade. hyperplasia, you actually do. I think hyper, yeah, there so is he's evidence saying, for hyperplasia. And if you take steroids, yeah, you, take yeah. steroids you will see hyperplasia. Oh, so it definitely is a thing. It just doesn't happen in humans who aren't on an endogenous ergogenic aid. Uh, he was saying over the long, I think I want to say like, he said over the long term. You probably term, would see small changes, I bet. Would see small yeah, hyperplasia yeah. amounts. And then he goes into like how that hyperplasia might possibly occur. Mm -hmm. It's just, it was really fascinating. I think it just gets so big. Yeah, like, the nitty gritty of that stuff is really honestly very intense. And yeah, yeah it is biochemistry. I mean, he, he works with it. Yeah, but the thing is like the cool thing about his lab is he doesn't work with like average shows for the most part. He has access to world-class MMA fighters, sprinters, athletes, and he's taking muscle biopsies of those I don't know people. why they'd agree to that. When you take this small biopsy, it won't do anything. I need every ounce of muscle Dude, I need. He shows, <laughs> he shows some of the biopsies and you're just like, oh my That's crazy. God, that has to not yeah. feel good. I think, like you said though, it's relevant hypertrophy is my yeah. opinion. I think that when you get into, you, it's mass-specific force, obviously, but <laughs> it, it like it's very difficult to increase the cross-sectional area of a muscle without seeing in squatting or okay, if you're squatting a bunch, it's very difficult to see only cross-sectional area improvements in the most specific muscle groups. So I think that's why sometimes squatting can be detrimental at times. I think deep squatting there, again, it comes back to a time and a place like I always say, but in that scenario, yeah, for sure. Do I want to try to push up the max strength as high as I possibly can? Yeah. Because most people aren't at that point where they're going to, they're going to see a detrimental impact on their jumping from having too much muscle mass. I've seen a couple of cross. I feel like athletes. you're directly calling out the people that are like, dude, I swear it was a nine out of 10 on an RPE scale. You're like, Oh really? <laughs> yeah. Oh really? You're not even shaking yet. <laughs> yeah. No, bro. I only had have one more. Trained no, you probably hard. had seven more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's just, it really, it comes down to what your expectations are as a coach from what you've seen uh, as a coach. And mm my expectations for athletes in improving output is I'm comparing to bobsled athletes. I'm comparing to Olympic sprinters. I'm comparing to who, by the way, don't train hard. There's a reason for that too. But jumping I like because unlike sprinting, it is more modifiable. And typically the more you grind, the better you're going to get. It's not as much genetics as everyone thinks. And I think that's one misconception about jumping. You see all types of people jump high. You don't see all types of people run fast, but you see all types of people jump by. And that's because there's so many different jump strategies. And coming back to the squat, because this is what this is all about, squatting is one of the easiest and best things that you can do to improve an athlete's ability to generate force fast in the relevant muscles for jumping. So why do I love it? That's why I love it. That's why it's relevant. That's why everyone, should, not everyone should do it, but all my episodes Bow tie, wrap it up. <laughs> delivered yeah so Mary, Mary, there you go 34 minutes Merry Christmas 34 minutes of why jumping is important Hunter was like let's do 10 minutes and I was like it's probably not gonna be 10 minutes <laughs> it's not gonna be 10 minutes but yeah so I just wanted the take-home message that I'd like to deliver to all the THP athletes that might be listening to this is that while we might not do all the sexy new crazy squat variations that you see on Instagram there's a reason that we stick to the tried and true squat and we load it differently we manage it differently but it's thought out as to why we stick with squats. There is more reasoning behind why you're squatting at the end of the season. More, you're squatting the same that you were at the end of the season as the beginning of the season than you could ever recognize unless I fully went into the detail of your training plan. Yeah. So sometimes it's yeah. like people are like, hey, can you just give the full explanation for why you did these things? And I'm like, no. I'm like, do you <laughs> like, 
are you asking me to write a dissertation here? Cause like you're asking for <laughs> my entire brain. Yeah. How long do you have? It's not just a quick note yeah. and it's frustrating at times. Yeah. yeah. But uh, anyways, there you go. 35 minutes of why squatting is important. If you want to jump higher. <laughs> Thanks guys. As always, make sure that you guys subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on Instagram. Follow Hunter on Instagram. What's your, your Instagram? It's Hunter LaPere. I think it's just Hunter underscore LaPere. Isaiah Rivera one, Austin Burke. That's the team right now, the four of us. Back we, on. What'd you say? So we got him on Instagram, <laughs> yeah, Austin. Austin. But thanks for listening, guys. And we'll catch you back on the next episode. Yeah, whole thing. Like, comment, subscribe. And if you're listening on podcast, please leave a review. It helps tremendously. Talk to you guys next Peace. time.